Welcome, Bulls Nation. This is Matt Gentile, and you're listening to another episode of the Rebuildable Podcast. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Rob Schaefer, who covers the Bulls for NBC Sports Chicago. A few episodes ago, Tony Gill joined the Rebuildable Three Timers Club, and as customary, he got to nominate a guest to join the show and chose Rob. Now, I've been following Rob Schaefer during the season, and I got to tell you, he's got a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the Bulls and the NBA. So I'm looking forward to chatting about the front office shakeup here in Chicago, the future of Jim Boylan, and of course, the last dance. And before we bring in Rob, I have to tell you, the last dance, the last dance has been a breath of fresh air. And I was looking forward to the documentary the minute it was teased on Christmas Day 2018, but it's been outstanding through the first four episodes. And seriously, thank you so much, ESPN, for dropping it earlier. Of course, it was supposed to be released in June this year, but was moved up due to the current COVID-19 pandemic. With sports suspended for the time being, I know this is helping me as a Bulls fan and many other Bulls fans and sports fans get through this. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but let's bring in Rob right now. Rob, thank you for coming on. How are you adjusting to this new normal? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, good to be with you, Matt. And it's been interesting, uh, obviously, being kind of cooped up um, inside in Chicago. It's my first year in the city and and covering the Bulls, so so it's been unfortunate to have uh, this kind of change life in such a drastic way. But obviously, there are more important considerations that come into play when a public health crisis is in effect. Uh, And for, I mean, fortunately the bulls have not allowed life to be mundane. So the job hasn't changed much other than not being on the go, uh, as frequently. Uh, but with, between the front office shakeup, between the last dance, uh, and between all the different ways that, you know, various members of the team have stayed busy over social media and things like that. Um, there, there's still been, I mean, honestly, there, there might've been more public interest around the team and engagement around the team from fans and observers, uh, after the, the season suspended and after the, the COVID-19 pandemic took effect than there was before, because this was obviously such an underwhelming season for a variety of reasons. <clears throat> but um, yeah, per, I mean, personally, it, it's been an adjustment. I think we're now a month and a half or two months in. So I, I think I, I could say I'm fully adjusted and transitioned to the new normal uh, and making the most of it. Well, it's it's a very interesting time to to join the beat at NBC Sports Chicago because it has been a crazy year um to to join uh, how would you describe your your first season you know covering this this team because you know we've had the pandemic and all these moves that have sort of happened in a flurry since then so how, how would you describe just everything that's been going on from the really the minute you started in november yeah yeah and, and since we, we talked a little bit of the about this uh off recording and i since looked it up my first day on the beat was uh november 18th 2019 which was which was uh, the first game Daniel Gafford played big minutes with the team. So that, I mean, I thought coming in and this second round rookie coming in and playing 20 minutes against the Bucks and scoring, I think he had 21 or 22 points or something like that. Uh, I thought that was crazy for a first night. And then this season has been wild ever since and getting wilder. Like you mentioned the pandemic, you mentioned kind of the front office changes and kind of all of the, the tensions and resentments and, and frustrations for the team kind of coming to a head uh, with the underperformance and with like various things with uh, between Zach Levine and, and Jim Boylan, like NBC sports Chicago, we're obviously a TV station and, and on a couple of our broadcasts, like we caught Zach <laughs> mouthing, you know, fr- 
words of frustration from the bench late in games at, at the late game uh, timeouts from Jim that people uh, like to bemoan. So, that, so, you know, those types of things make it crazy. And then you have an all-star weekend hosted in Chicago. I, I thought it was a tremendous opportunity to get to cover that and uh, to be kind of about the world of, uh, of basketball and, and basketball media while Chicago was the, the, the center of the sports world. Uh, that, so that was very cool, but, but another uh, crazy wrinkle. And then at that all-star weekend, you get the reports that come out front office change coming in the off season. Uh, that's a crazy story that, that you then have to keep in the back of your mind as you're going through the day to day. This is actually my first full-time job uh, at a college is, is doing this. So, so all those adjustments that go with that. Um, and then the pandemic hits and then the front office search accelerates. And, uh, so, so it's been interesting. I, I've learned a ton. Uh, but the biggest takeaway is, you know, as much as I said, it, it's been nice to have interest be, be so high. I am looking forward to getting back in the locker room at practices and games every day. Cause I mean, really growing up, I'm sure you and everybody else can relate to this to be, you know, paid to sit some some days courtside, some days not courtside, but still at NBA games and talking to NBA players and NBA coaches and front office people and writing and, you know, doing all those kinds of things. Uh, it's a dream come true. So, you know, regardless of how dire the, the, the bull circumstances seemed at times, uh, I, I couldn't consider myself luckier. So you mentioned this is your first time in Chicago. Are you originally from out of state? Uh, I'm from Connecticut originally, uh, just outside the New Haven area, um, a suburb just outside of there, uh, where I grew up. And then I went to school out here. I went to, to Northwestern uh, and then moved downtown and, uh, again, was fortunate enough to, to land here eventually. Um, nice. So, yeah, I, I, I love the city. I have family in up in Milwaukee, which uh, I don't talk about too much, uh, but uh, <laughs> at least publicly uh, for fear of of alienation, but, uh, no, it's been great, man. I love Chicago. I love the Midwest. Uh, it's like I said, this has been a little wrench in getting to know the city, but, uh, it's been really cool, especially like all-star weekend, especially, Mm -hmm. uh, at the risk of digressing a little bit to immerse, not only in kind of being the center of the NBA world, but also the amount of Chicago basketball history that was explained and, and elucidated and, and talked about that whole weekend was really cool. Um, and it really helped, you know, my, my own personal connection to the, to the city and the people here. So yeah, like, like I said, man, couldn't be, couldn't be luckier as a, wow. as a young reporter writer. That's pretty awesome. Like what are some, uh, what are some things you're enjoying about the city or, well, I guess enjoyed about, you know, just the city of Chicago in general before all this pandemic stuff hit? Yeah, well, our, so our offices are right downtown, which is, which is cool. It's just cool to, you know, have the, the commute in the city and to be right on the river, um, uh, you know, obviously being a suburban kid, just like being in the midst of, of skyscrapers and, and big city type things uh, is very is still very uh, fascinating for me, even being you know relatively close to to New York as a kid. But really, I so I live in Wrigleyville, which is not necessarily in the middle of that that hubbub. Mm-hmm. But it's really been to me growing up and sports meaning so much to me, immersing myself in every level of sports fandom here. Like, obviously, it's it's a big city and it's a filled with passionate sports fans, but for such a variety of different teams. Um, that's been a really cool thing to to get to immerse myself in and interact with, uh, especially mm-hmm. at NBC Sports Chicago. Like so many people are local and, and grow, grew up diehard fans. Um, I moved here last July, got to Wrigley a bunch. I'm like a five or 10 minute walk away from, from there, uh, which nice. is a huge, important thing uh, to me. Um, so yeah, and then this, this Bulls job kind of, you know, being the being on the beat and being on the front lines day to day kind of consumes your life. Uh, but even that just, you know, the places that that takes you, 
uh, has been cool. So mm-hmm. yeah, couldn't ask for anything more. I was gonna say if we get back to a level of uh, you know normalcy, you you said you got to enjoy, you know, the end of the summer there and in in Chicago and in Wrigleyville area. It's it's awesome. There's so many different parts of the city that I think you'll enjoy. So with uh with the Bulls this year, we we talked about the the shakeup there for a little bit. The the most recent hire, Mark Eversley from the Sixers, uh, hired to do, to take on the GM role. What are your thoughts on that hire? Um, as it was made a couple of days ago. Uh, you know, it seems like it's Arturis Karnishevis's show as executive VP, but we know that this is going to be uh, an important spot in that growing front office. So just your thoughts on the Eversley hire. Yeah, yeah, it's a significant hire. Uh, it, it was one that I, you know, he popped up as a candidate and uh, Karnishevis, I think, was an easy guy to form a fully formed opinion on early on because he had been in, you know, in a, in a public role in Denver for so long and, and you could you could kind of very easily trace uh, moves he was attached to and, uh, you know, different quotes he had given or different opinions that, that colleagues had, had publicly said about him. And, and Eversley wasn't is someone you probably had to dig a little bit deeper on. Um, and since his hiring, you know, I and, and everybody else in the Bulls universe ha- has been doing. And I, I he's really uh, I've really been impressed by everything that I've seen and heard. Um, to me, what stands out about it uh, and, and what stood out to me about uh, Arturis when when he was introduced was he talked about not wanting clones, not wanting people that were too closely aligned with him philosophically or ideology, ideologically in the front office. Uh, him and Eversley seem to be similar in, in a couple different ways. They're, they both seem to be soft-spoken and, and uh, have strong reputations as, as scouts or, or talent evaluators. Uh, but the thing that and, – and not to say that they're dissimilar in this way, but the thing that Eversley I think is really going to bring is an emphasis on player development and relationships. That seems to be the most the, – the single prevailing thread throughout his time, throughout the league, and he's been, at, he's been in a bunch of – uh, well-regarded organizations, Toronto. Uh, he was with Washington before they kind of hit the the swoon that they're in now. And Philly has obviously uh, had their upswing recently, and he's been there for the last four or five years. And what you hear is just everywhere he goes, he's really – and it, it's tough because I, I think we get in the habit of all of these candidates are oh, they're well-regarded, they're well-respected, but he really truly seems to be, and he truly seems to be by a litany of different players that he's worked with. And I think when you look at the Bulls and what they should want – in this new front office that they're building is not only a more modernized front office, more forward thinking in, in terms of uh, analytics and scouting and, and player performance and, and training and, and all the, the medical considerations and things like that. But I think they also need to focus on re uh, establishing their image around the league as being a positive one. Uh, I mean, we'll talk about the last dance in a little bit, but obviously the, the perception of the organization, I think it's safe to say has, has fallen since that time. Uh, and has even uh, taken a little bit of a downturn since the Rose years in the late 2010s. Uh, and I think having a guy like Eversley and a guy like Karnishevis, who are so well-respected, not just by executives, but by players around the league, helps with free agent pitching. It helps in your own building, uh, getting the most out of the players uh, that you that you already have. Um, and the fact that their focus is so clearly there, uh, I think is a really a strong thing and, and a good a good omen for the long-term prospects uh, of what they're building here. I think you, you make a really good point. It's something that I've, I've been noticing with the way this front office is being shaped. You have a lot of interesting balance. And, you know, while it is Karnishevis' show, I think it's safe to say his strong suit seems to be in the international scouting. That's really his calling card. And, and you look at Eversley, 
And I see a lot more strength in terms of pro personnel. You brought up player development and some of the um, pre-existing relationships he has around the league. The, um, you know, sort of he has this interesting background too. I believe he, his, you know, he came from, I believe, Nike, I was, I was reading. And so it, it seems like there's a, a nice balance being built within that front office and even with the Polk and Conley hires. Yeah, yeah, and and with it, to your point, well, with Polk, you have a guy that's that's a salary cap expert and that is going to know mm-hmm. the ins and outs of the CBA. That's something that's incredibly important. I mean, I think everybody in an NBA front office should, and everybody, honestly, even people writing or covering or writing about or covering the league should know, um, should be acquainted with the salary cap. But to have someone who really knows it by letter uh, is crucially important. Um, Pat Connolly is someone uh, you know we could also mention as as their new. I don't know if he has an official title yet. He'll be uh, the head of player personnel or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, modern front offices. All these titles are kind of flimsy <laughs> and ambiguous. And, you know, they all yeah. kind of have their areas of focus. And especially with Arturis, what he's building, it's going to be very collaborative and, and kind of all-inclusive. There's not necessarily going to be a very rigid delineation of responsibilities, which is also something I think, if built the right way, uh, is a good departure from from the norm uh, for the Bulls. But... um yeah, the the, ba- the balance is something that's really marked and, you know, really good because for an organization that has kind of stuck in its ways for pretty much the pretty much since Jerry Reinsdorf bought the team in 1985, mm-hmm. it's they've, they've kind of been famed for their over loyalty and and rigidness for them to be just completely wide scale sweeping the decks uh, with the exception of possibly the coach, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um it's again just uh, good omens all around, and as much as everybody's—that's th- the thing with this stuff. Everybody's undefeated until the games get played. So mm-hmm. whenever the Bulls take the court again, that's when all the criticisms are going to start coming out again, and and there will be room for that when it happens. But as we sit right now, there's no reason to really, in my view, be anything but optimistic about um, not just the decisions they're making, but the approach that uh, they seem to be taking with the process of these decisions. Well, certainly the, the front office is now starting to come into the 21st century, it seems like. And one last question about the front office. What are some other moves that we can maybe expect there in the coming weeks, maybe within the, you know, possibly the off season, whenever that actually happens? Um, is there any other moves that we should expect or, or areas that we should see that could get beefed up or changed? Yeah, I, I think scouting is an area where where you'll see um, some heft start to be to be brought in there. Um, it, it the way it's been talked about uh, the the process that Karnashovas or Karnashovas still working on that uh, is about to undergo. The way it's been talked about is just kind of a a general evaluation and filling out uh, scouting analytics and the the medical staff is obviously I think a point that a lot of fans uh, are concerned about. So I, I would say just be on the lookout for the under the radar moves there um, in terms of the big public facing people. Um, there was talk uh, initially uh, that there would be multiple assistant GMs hired. And, and I know J.J. Polk is one. Um, and, and Pat Connolly, I, I think his name had kind of been um, thought of as being in that category. But now, obviously, well, he'll, he'll have more of a player personnel role. Obviously, again, like I said, all these roles are are kind of ambiguous. Uh, but I think that's something to maybe keep a side eye on is if another assistant GM comes into the fold. Uh, I don't have necessarily names uh, or a timeline on that, but I, but I think that's something that was talked about at the beginning that's worth uh, keeping in the back of our minds. Uh, but mostly just the the departments that 
have frankly been understaffed for this team for the last couple of years, scouting analytics uh, and uh, medical and training staffs. Um, I think looking for those to be filled out is the next place uh, that all Bulls fans should shift their focus to. So you hinted to it, and I definitely want to bring it up, and it's, of course, Jim Boylan's future. Now, we've heard reports, and, and the latest coming from uh, Joe Colley from the, the Chicago Sun-Times, that um, you know Jim Boylan himself seems like he's dead set that this is going to still be his job. Now, I think that you know it's important to point out that we're still technically in the middle of the 2020 season. We haven't hit the offseason officially. There's, you know, there's a lot of gray area right now. Um, what are you, what are you hearing? What do you think is, is going to happen here with Jim Boylan? Is it all kind of up in the air based on what happens with the rest of this NBA season? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that they're going to let the fate of the NBA season necessarily decide his ultimate fate. Uh, but I don't think if, there is some sort of presumption of the regular season if Jim Boylan is the coach to finish out the 2019-20 season. And that's a big if. I mean, it, we we certainly don't seem to really be even close to having the conversation, that conversation yet. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think if Jim Boylan is the coach to finish out the 2019-20 season, that necessarily means he would be the coach next season. Um, in terms, it, it's hard to say uh, anything concrete in terms of that, though. I, all All you hear is, that it's a decision that's ongoing and that uh, Karnaschovas is going to get to know um, and reach out to uh, pretty much everyone on the roster and everyone on the coaching staff and complete his, you know, quote unquote, comprehensive evaluation. Um, the longer it draws out, I think people are starting to get fans that is are, are starting to get antsy that that maybe he will be retained. Um, I, I think if I had to guess and this is completely speculative, I just think the case uh, against retaining him is probably stronger than the case for. So that would still be my kind of leaning. Uh, but again, that's, that's purely speculative. And I, and I wouldn't say that that's coming from a place of, of evidence necessarily. That's just my gut feeling. Um, what, what I keep coming back to is a conversation that I had with, um, that we had on, uh, on our Bulls talk podcast, which is on NBC sports Chicago with a reporter for the Denver post, Mike Singer, who covered uh, Arturis and knew him when he was in Denver um, and the one thing that he said that really stuck out to me was how much Karnishevis values player relationships and the dynamics in a basketball locker room between the players and the coach. And I don't know if I'm quoting him verbatim, but he said something to the effect of if there is a divide in that locker room between the players and Jim Boylan, Karnishevis will find out about it. Um, and that mm-hmm. will be something that impacts his decision making. So that has stuck out to me only because of, you know, I alluded to this earlier, but a couple public uh, demonstrations of frustration by the players. Now, it, I, there was never a point of full-on mutiny in the locker room, uh, to my knowledge. Um, in fact, the Bulls locker room is one that, uh, between the players, is incredibly um, tight-knit. And there's a lot of respect in there uh, on a player-to-player basis. Um, and there's even, I, I think with select players, I think people would be surprised to, to hear the way that some players talk about uh, Jim, they talk about him in a positive way. He's someone who really, you know, cares and is conscientious and works hard and, and knows basketball. Um, albeit he has his quirks that I, that I think are a bit of a turnoff to, <laughs> to some people. Um, you know, the, you can't say that he's a bad dude or that he, he doesn't try. Um, so that, that's something that stuck out to me is, is if that rift is there, if that divide is there on a deeper level than the, than the cosmetic stuff that we've seen publicly throughout the year, that's going to be something that's going to sway Karnishevis is thinking. I agree with you. Of course, what you know, Jim Boylan is going to say 
is that he's fully confident in the status of his job. Of course, that's what he's going to say. And, and it seems like he, him and Arturis have been in contact. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if those conversations are going well. You know, Jim, when you talk to him personally, is a, is a really, you know, congenial, uh, likable, nice guy. Uh, and it seems like Arturis is, too. Um, so it's frustrating. But I do think that is a, uh, a wait and see situation for the time being. Um, although I, I do think the longer it drags out, I, I can sense the tension in the fan base of people kind of like we're so close to getting everything that we want. Um, but, you know, as with everything in the basketball world and the real world these days, we just kind of have to, to hold our breath a little bit longer. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta be patient. If, um, you know, if we're reading the tea, re- tea leaves correctly and, and he does end up uh, being relieved of his duties, again, pure speculation, but are, are there some potential candidates that are on your radar? I know some names being thrown out. We've, we've heard names like Adrian Griffin, Kenny Atkinson, who was uh, fired uh, during the, the season from the Brooklyn Nets. Are there other names potentially, though, that you might uh, might throw out there that, that could be potential fits with the Bulls? Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't love to or I, I, I don't love to have that conversation before we know Jim Spade because I, I think it is more up in the air than I think a lot of people are giving it credit for. Uh, if we were to on a speculative basis, I think Griffin is one that makes a lot of sense, obviously has the seat and all connection with Karnischewicz uh, and has um, the Raptors connection with Eversley, who uh, I think Joe Cowley also said um, he had heard that the that Eversley, Eversley's connections in Toronto are, are still pretty strong and that there's you know uh, an easy point of contact there. Um, Atkinson is, is a guy that also makes a lot of sense for the player development history in Brooklyn. Um, I, but I, again, when we talk about what the, the COVID-19 pandemic, what the impact is going to be there, um, it, it, and it factors into why the bulls aren't going to make a quick decision here is you don't necessarily want, if you're going to let your coach go, you don't necessarily want to do that before you have an idea of what the candidate landscape is going to be. And there are, you know, coaches around the league that, that's positions aren't safe either. I, you know, I think Brett Brown in Philadelphia is a good example of that. Um, and I think you could say he has a pretty strong player development background. I, I know that's a name that has kind of been tainted over the years because they've come up short in the playoffs the last couple of years. Um, but he's a guy that, you know, would interest me. I, I would certainly, you know, consider it, especially if you have the Eversley uh, Philly background. Again, that's all speculative. Um, you have other, you know, and other people around the league that that's jobs necessarily aren't safe. Um, you have Atkinson obviously vacated the Brooklyn job. You have David Fisdale who vacated the Knicks job. You know, you might want to look at that. Um, there are a laundry list of, uh, of assistants around the league that are kind of waiting for their shot that maybe they would look at. I, it seems like the MO of this new front office is kind of finding those rising stars that you don't necessarily think of on the, on the top uh, of a list of candidates immediately. So maybe names from, from that crop will emerge. Um, but again, I, I do think it's too early to, to have that conversation in, in any sort of concrete uh, fashion. Um, I, it's one of those things like the resumption of the season schedule where I think the, the pandemic is going to dictate the, the pace of that conversation and that decision uh, as much as anything. So, of, of course, I think one of the, the most uh, intriguing storylines going on right now is not even on the basketball court. And it's actually a story that's... Uh, almost 22 years old, and it's uh, The Last Dance. ESPN's The Last Dance has been, um, I think, taking a lot of Bulls fans and sports fans, really, because there's nothing else to enjoy right now. It's sort of taking us by storm, and we've been through the first four episodes. Um, I've been very impressed with it. I I like the presentation of 
looking at the 1998 season and using it as a lens back in time to take a look at the whole dynasty. I wanted to get your thoughts just in general on these first four episodes and and what you've you've gleaned from it. Oh, yeah, I've loved it. I mean, we were talking, I'm I'm not a, a local a local person and, and I'm young in the industry and everything like that. I, you know, don't have much memory of the, of the dynasty bulls, if any at all. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a nice history lesson. It's been a lot of fun to watch. I think uh, you mentioned kind of the, the way that they're handling the competing narratives and storylines. I think they've done about as good a job with all that as you could ask um, for how much they're juggling. Uh, it's something that certainly seems to justify the, the 10 part uh, or the 10 hour format, um, which is, you know, such a compared to some of the other projects that they've undergone is is so immense um what i've gleaned from it i think big picture in the four episodes i i what really surprised me and maybe it's you know my youth and and naivete or, or whatever you want to call it but to see the landscape of the nba as a sport and the bulls as a franchise in the early 1980s and then to see the heights like in such a what seems like such a short period of time uh, has mm-hmm. really been fascinating, uh, especially when you when you think of uh, the way that Michael Jordan almost seemed to single-handedly in the mid to late 80s drag that franchise from basically obscurity um, to a worldwide phenomenon. That's been and the and the different layers of, of that story have been have been fascinating. Um, the little anecdotes, you know, the the going up to Sam Smith uh, and Lacey Banks and Kent McDill. Uh, before game five against Cleveland and saying, we got you, we got you, we're coming for you next. Like those little things, those little peeks into, mm-hmm. into the truly ruthlessly competitive nature are, are fun as a sports fan, especially because we're all watching this story with a pretty good grasp on the timeline and, and how it's going to end. We know the major plot points. So you need those little uh, peaks behind the curtain. Uh, those mm-hmm. are the things that, that we're really learning the most. Um, and then in terms of last week's episode, what I think the probably the most, kind of uh blown back onto my couch that i was just in awe and shock and like what what the hell is going on here was the the phil jackson origin story like what was going on for those you know five or ten minutes that they were it was really unbelievable and i think i I, if i'm remembering correctly it went to a commercial break kind of right after uh his whole story unraveled and i felt like i needed it like i needed just Mm -hmm. kind of two or three minutes off like oh my god we just went from this dude getting drafted and winning two titles with the Knicks, he's in Puerto Rico, you know, officials are getting shot. Like what, like this is great, you know? Um, so that, I mean, I never knew uh, even half of that about Phil's yeah. background. You obviously come in knowing about uh, Michael's upbringing. Uh, if you watch the, do- uh, the Dennis Rodman documentary, you know all about him. Um, Scotty's upbringing was something that I didn't know a ton about that, uh, the adversity that he went through. And, and when you think about the, the eventual scandal of his being underpaid, um, you know, it, re- it really opened the door into why he uh, took that long term deal in the mm-hmm. first place. And, and you can really empathize with that decision, even if it ended up, um, you know, not necessarily working in his favor, although he made it, he made his money eventually. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just, you know, you could talk for hours about it, how fun yeah. it's been, how fun the collective experience on Twitter has been um, of people. Some people are reliving it. Some people are living it for the first time. Everybody's, you know, cracking jokes and, and having fun mm-hmm. with it. Um, so yeah, I, I, what, what have your, what have been your big impressions? Um, and, and what, what is your history kind of, um, with the bulls necessarily? I, I realized I never asked you anything. Uh, sure. About and you know, it, I wanted to say it's fascinating because, you know, you, you kind of cover two buckets that I haven't talked with yet. I've talked to a lot of people around my age, so I'm a little bit older. I'm in my early thirties. And so I, I know a lot about the, you know, the, the second three Pete, I, I got to really live that. 
um, at a young age, but I got to you know witness that. And I remember it very vividly. I remember some of the first three Pete. So I got to, to live those championship years in Chicago, but I've heard all the stories and I got to watch and, and read all those reports that were going on around that time. So some of the stories I, I know, but hearing the testimonial and hearing it from the lens of Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson and Scottie Pippen and getting their actual you know, verification of everything or stories about those situations that we heard about were interesting because um, you might have heard in the, the first episode with Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson when they were going through their little riff and Krause made the statement, you know, if you go 82 and oh, you're fucking gone. I mean, that that's well known if you're if you've been, uh, you know, a Bulls fan, if you're around my age or older, you've heard that story before. But to hear just it, you know, confirmed by Phil is is something and hearing then like Phil's reaction to that is very interesting. You know, getting the the perspective of Scottie Pippen's contract from his perspective, I thought was really fascinating because, like you said, when you start learning about his childhood, it really puts it in perspective why he took that deal. And um, even last week's episode with the migraine game, you know, hearing it from his perspective and then also Michael's perspective was very interesting because it was uh, such a hot button topic with with Scottie Pippen in 1990 was that game a lot of people questioned his toughness and some older fans believe it or not still do you know i don't know if you've if you've been following on twitter or anything you'll know there's there's older fans that still are very skeptical that scotty had a migraine and i heard i saw you tweet about you know you having migraines as a kid you offered some interesting perspective on that but some people still like have trouble grasping that, believe it or not yeah i i couldn't believe when i saw it because i i really had very little knowledge that that game was a thing at all i I just didn't know much about that story i might have vaguely heard the migraine game somewhere mm-hmm. uh, but i was amazed yeah i mean i had i had chronic migraines when i was yeah i was amazed he was even out on the floor yeah. um uh, you're right I, I you do see the discourse about that um and it's interesting but but it really underscores what, what i think has been an interesting thing in the doc that they've done really well which is i, I think history kind of corrupts uh people's perception of what those teams were and for someone like me like that is those teams are the ultimate symbol of invincibility and, and they're immortal and they're unbeatable. And it's Michael Jordan and like he, he never lost and all this different stuff. And then, you know, obviously people get into the LeBron debate and things like that. And um, but it, what you realize watching this is there were trials and tribulations. There was adversity. There was a time when he was perceived as a flashy performer that could never win the big one that could never get it done in the big game. And that's what 89 that the shot of Rilo that's, that was a huge step in the right direction there, but then you still fall to Detroit. You have to, you have to grind. You have to work for the next um, year or two to 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 overcome that beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you lose game one of the '91 Finals, and it's like, is it collapsing again? Uh, so th- so that that arc has been really interesting for me to watch because you you don't see that team and those people and those players as mortal, but I think they've done yeah. a good job of humanizing them, um, even if. You know, I'm sure there are parts of this that are that are uh, exaggerated because Michael gets the final say on everything. And he they say it's, you know, off, everything is on limits, but he certainly is dictating the the tone of this, given that he has final say on everything and that he's his sign off is the only reason that this is, um, you know, made it to made it to publishing in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that's been a thing that I've really 
really enjoyed. Yeah, and it, it is, like I said, it's really interesting, though, to hear your perspective on that, too, being that, you know, you, you didn't necessarily grow up around here and, and, and watching the Bulls at that time. Um, and I, I think it's fascinating that you actually see the Bulls through that lens of, you know, this, this invincible benchmark, because... Like, I feel like they were, they're kind of humanized here because when you deal with like, you know, if you're, if you're a huge sports fan like myself, you you listen to sports talk and in the nineties, like these topics are coming back to life because of the the documentary. It's crazy. Like I remember driving around with my dad in, you know, suburban Chicago, listening to 670, the score. And at at that time it was 1160, I think AM and hearing some of the the debates that are going on on Twitter right now and it's just it's it's like boggling my mind because it's like wow like these are debates that are just being unearthed again and the I think the shame is not getting Jerry Krause's perspective of it now I I do like that um your colleague Casey Johnson is is bringing some of I guess his thoughts out through um an unpublished memoir and I think that's kind of cool to get that perspective because I, I would have liked to have heard, you know, what Jerry Krause's counter to some of those uh, points being brought up by Michael and Scotty and, you know, Dennis are because, you know, he did build these teams. You got to give him credit that he did build this dynasty and was a big reason this this ended up being torn down. And, and to hear his perspective would have been great. Yeah, and I, I think I heard on uh, on Rich Eisen's show, um, the director, and I, I still don't have his last name down because I haven't heard it actually said out loud enough times. So I think it's Jason Hayer. He was interviewed and he said, he actually did say, wait to rush to judgment on Krause's portrayal in the documentary because by the time it ends, and this is something we all probably should have assumed anyway, but it's such a, you know, you got to rush to have a take culture that, 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 you take it at face value when in episodes one and two, he's kind of portrayed as the villain. I'm, I do that too. I'm the culprit of that too. Um, but he said to wait because by the end he will have a more rounded out, um, kind of balanced, uh, depiction of Krauss by the end of it. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm grateful to the Krauss family too, for allowing, uh, Casey to, and, and us to, to publish those, um, excerpts. Uh, cause I guess he was, uh, I guess he actually, started uh working temp tempers or in some capacity at a newspaper and he did have this love of writing uh which i wasn't mm-hmm. aware of. um and you know it's not the most polished stuff in the world but it is interesting and it's interesting to hear his voice shine through when really it's it's very limited in the documentary because he doesn't seem to around that team have a ton of other than maybe jerry reinsdorf a ton of overly vocal defenders even the p even when he is giving credit it's it's it almost seems begrudging at least so far um so mm-hmm. it interesting to hear that shine through because at the end of the day i mean this is an executive that presided and and i mean he didn't draft michael jordan but he built uh teams mm-hmm. with him um and has such a track record of just great like you look at him kind of spotting scotty pippen and he wasn't open to the the rodman acquisition at first but ultimately taking that chance i think is something that really the entire organization deserves credit for uh for making mm-hmm. that the level that it did uh but ultimately this is a guy with six championships on his uh on his resume and mm-hmm. if you look at where the bulls are now and where honestly chicago sports are in general right now like how could you scoff at that um when you look at how all the teams are trying to get back to to that level of perennial contention no that's very well said and i'm actually really 
you know, it's it's great to hear that that's something that might get um, that there might be more light shed on that as we get through these other episodes, because I am really looking forward to the later episodes as we get closer to the end of the 98 season and starting to get the perspective of everybody when it's nearly over or, you know, what's what's playing in everybody's minds in terms of what the 98 off season is going to look like, because there was a lot of what ifs going on in Chicago in the summer of 98 and then through that early lockout in 1999. And one of the biggest what ifs, um, you've probably seen it pop up and, and it, it'll definitely pop up more and more. Would the Bulls have won in a strike shortened 1999 season if they had kept most of that roster intact? Yeah, I was just um, having the other day yeah and i it's it's a really fair question to ask because they were an older team you know they're running on fumes in 98 but if you gave them a 50 game regular season a short and regular season and going into the playoffs it would have been very interesting to see if they could have done it one more year well the, uh, so the i was having this conversation i had the same thought and you look at the spurs team that won i i think the the duncan robinson combo as much yeah. as they as much as they famously uh were effective in corralling, you know, Shaquille O'Neal and other, uh, you know, Sean Kemp and other teams with with dominant bigs. Having that that twin towers, Duncan and Robinson, I think still would have given them them trouble. Uh, yeah, effective. Um, but other than that, that Spurs team wasn't. They weren't necessarily stacked. Like they weren't necessarily an all time great team. Um, even though that's the Spurs team that kind of sparked their their own dynastic run. Um, but the one thing that I think, and the person I was talking to brought this up uh, the other day, what might have hurt them is even a 50 or so game regular season uh, would be would have been the condensed schedule. Like when you think about the yeah. the aging process and bodies breaking down and the the dynasty just generally being tired, uh, you know, playing. I don't I don't know what the schedule breakdown was like back then, but like if they played, yeah. I don't know, three and five nights or three and four nights or something like that, like that would have yeah. taken its toll eventually. Yeah. Right. I think it was over, if I recall. So I was a nerd. I had what was the the NBA encyclopedia. It was through the 2000 season. I got it as a birthday gift when I was 10. And um, I think it was that they played 50 games in 89 days in 1999. So it was a it was a pretty rough go because the season I believe started at the end of January that year. So they they like. They went quick. Now, one thing that I will throw at you, though, because um, this is a fun hypothetical, that offseason, there were some interesting free agent candidates that were out there, and one name that I remember being floated around with the Chicago Bulls, and it's not a sexy name, but this guy made a ton of money but ended up getting hurt, uh, Jason Williams, center for, the, for the, at that time, the New Jersey Nets. And a lot of people thought that that was going to be a big target for the Chicago Bulls had they kept everybody intact and would have been somebody to add to that front court. So that would have been really like if that move move would have happened, that would have been an interesting matchup going up against a team like the Spurs. If you have Duncan Robinson, again, it's all speculation, but some fun things to kind of play around with in your head. And I, I would love it if this documentary gets into you know, what that thought process might have been if there was maybe a last-ditch effort to try and, and build something around, you know, Michael even, what that would have looked like. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Yeah, that, and you're right, that would have addressed the size thing. Um, I just wonder, and what I'm really, almost more than the way that they depict the finals, I'm really looking forward to 
the conference final series with Indiana because that's mm-hmm. such a legendary oh. series for young people like me. I, I can't wait to watch it. I've been talking to my yeah. friends that are Bulls fans and they're like, I, I'm honestly dreading it because I'm going to be it's almost going to be like post traumatic, like post trauma, like remembering <laughs> how stressful that was back in, oh my in the moment. Uh, but I can't wait for that. Uh, that and we're we're actually on NBC Sports Chicago. We're we're rebroadcasting that for people with uh, cable over the next week or so. I think it starts tomorrow. Uh, mm-hmm. But I yeah, that's going to be a legendary watch. Oh yeah, Ni- ninety eight Eastern Conference Finals. Um, I was just talking about it on a podcast a couple weeks ago with Matt Peck. Um, we were going through just our favorite role players, and and his favorite role player from the Dynasty era was Ron Harper, and. You know, Ron Harper had a really big role in that Eastern Conference Finals that year because he got cross-matched a few times on on Reggie Miller, and he gave Reggie a hard time shooting more than Michael did. And the the Bulls' length, I think you'll you'll notice like that's what ends up playing out um, because they were able to put Pip on Mark Jackson to slow him down. They were able to kind of give Michael some breathers by putting him on Mullen, and then they put Harper on on Reggie, and Harper held his own. It, it was a it was a crazy series. It was yeah, game seven. I remember sweating bullets as a kid because that was a game that you know could have gone either way, and and the Bulls rallied from a, a early deficit to win that. That's crazy times, man. And it, it's it's amazing because like I feel like we need this right now. We need to you know if we have no sports going on right now, we might as well have some good nostalgia. Yeah, well, Ron Harper, they should have put on the Cleveland should have put on Jordan in the the eighty nine. <laughs> first round the history might the whole world might look different right now uh but that, that is that, that's funny that peck said that because harper we we did uh we did the 96 playoffs um a couple weeks ago for about a month like the first month of of this whole mm-hmm. you know quarantine pandemic saga and the length and the defensive versatility really really stands out uh and stands the test of time in terms of how good this team would have been even in the modern era like i don't like to do the cross-generational comparisons because they're so nebulous and hypothetical and it's it's just impossible to do um but harper has been an incredible revelation for me him and ku coach um and even longley oh. like some of the post work that he was able to do defensively i'm like these are not the guys that you hear about as being uh as kind of incredible as they are but but those have been huge revelations for me i'm just surprised beck didn't say or peck didn't say uh judd bushler because I, I know he gets very enthusiastic when he sees uh, Judd Bushler check into a game and, and I know he loves Rodman too but I guess Rodman would transcend the role player even even though yeah. he is like the dirty work complimentary guy he, he transcends uh, role player without a doubt mm-hmm. no and he was a he was a fan favorite too him and him and Steve Kerr off the bench were the two guys that, that you know fans would go crazy for whenever they checked into games but um, yeah it's it's been interesting watching and you know big credit to NBC Sports Chicago for doing this too you know, bringing back some of these old playoff series. I did watch a lot of the 96 run. I've enjoying some of the 98 run right now. And, you know, the one thing that has stood out to me, and you, you mentioned, you know, comparing eras. I, I'm not a huge fan of that either. But I have to, uh, watching these games, I have to say, like, the Bulls really did have positionless basketball before that was a thing. They had the death line. Um, they had the death line. Yeah. With Rodman at center and Kukoc at the four. That's That was the death lineup before there was a death lineup. Yeah. And you, you look at the, the length they had on the floor because, you know, Ron Harper's playing point guard by title, right? Really, it's Scotty who's bringing the ball up. Scotty's got the primary point forward duties. And you look, you have, uh, you know, 6'6", six, 6'6", six, 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 Three long guys, like, being able to guard, you know, four positions on the floor if they wanted to. 
And that's what made them so deadly is like they could cross match on people. And even offensively, there's a lot of movement with the triangle. Like, yeah, the philosophies of the triangle might be a little outdated, but it is a constant movement to get somebody open. So like there's there's some philosophies that even still play pretty well now. It's just um, it's interesting to watch it. And it's like I said, it's been a lot of fun watching this with the last dance, but also what you guys are doing at NBC Sports Chicago definitely helping me get through this. Yeah, I've loved it, especially, uh, you know, it's been it, and it's just another level. It's another class in the in the crash course in, in Bulls history, which is, which has been just tremendous fun. And and yeah, even in the last dance, when they get into the like the film breakdown and the strategy breakdown of the triangle, even that's fun because it's like, oh, we get to, you know, be basketball nerds for, for five or ten minutes in the context of this kind of rock star story. Um, so that was fun and to gain the appreciation for, for Phil and Tex Winter. Uh, and everything like that. But yeah, to your point about the, the offensive creation thing, it, even though, like you said, maybe the triangle is a little bit outdated, it did emphasize that at least, you know, three or four, if not everybody on the floor needed to be able to create and to make decisions on the fly and to be versatile in that way. And that's something that has absolutely endured uh, into the modern NBA. So they're, they're a team that, you know, I, I think even before watching them in such an intimate way, I would have agreed was ahead of its time just because of the level of success they had and the cultural impact they had and everything like that. But to watch it play out in on the actual basketball court and to to be able to fall in love with them in that way has been just enlightening and awesome. And um, like you said, just the perfect catharsis uh, during, you know, what what would have what would be a, a significantly more trying time without all these different outlets. And one last thing, too, with with their kind of them being ahead of their time. Um, imagine if they, on offense, if they take some of those philosophies and they just step out a few extra feet. They'd actually be three-point shooters. It's crazy if you start watching, like, some of these games. The amount of foot-on-the-line twos that Mike takes, and you're just like, oh, my God, man. Oh, my God. It can't be too much of a nerd about it, but oh, my God, man. If you would j- just a step further out, and the numbers that are already so ridiculous are even more so. Mm-hmm. It's not like he wouldn't have been able to yeah. do it. I mean, of course he would have been able to do it. Yeah, the the points per game, the percentages would have been higher, and and I mean, it, it's of course though different time, different time. But um, uh, one last thing about uh, just the last dance. What has been probably the the biggest or the most fun story that you've heard from the documentary in the in the first four episodes? Ooh, good question. Good question. The most fun story. I really like that Elo story because there's levels to it. Like there's not only Jordan talking shit to the media or to the, to the Chicago reporters that picked against them. Um, you also then have the secondary story within it of Ron Harper being like, coach, you got to put me on him. Just saying like, ah, oh, fuck this. So when he wouldn't, and then you see it play out. Um, and then you have the subtext, like I mentioned earlier of that was one of the first like moments where Jordan, where Jordan, started to uh, accelerate the ascent from kind of young flashy scorer to the the ultimate winner and the ultimate competitor. And, and the guy who always came up big in the big game, whereas he maybe didn't have that perception before. Uh, I think that that's a, that's a great kind of singular anecdote. Um, it was cool to watch the, the Doug Collins stuff. I'm, I'm thinking mostly I'm having recency bias because of the most mm-hmm. recent episodes were, were so recent. Um, like I said, that Phil stuff was great. There's yeah. so much to parse. There's so much to parse through. It's uh, it's tough. I'm trying to I'm trying to rack my brain. I was here. gonna say I saw that you had the the picture. Uh, you you posted. You said you wanted it on a shirt. Yeah, I saw it on your Twitter handle. 
of Phil Jackson in the cab when they were telling the story about him always being on acid. Um, I thought <laughs> I thought that was very fascinating. So you definitely like the Phil stuff. His 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 come up and just how much of an outside the box thinker he was, but how much he was able to because you saw that Tex Winter was kind of the the brains behind mm-hmm. a lot of the strategy. But like what separated Phil was being so in tune with what made his players tick. And when we talk about player development with the present day Bulls, like that's what we're talking about is being perfectly in sync with your team and being able to read how to interact with and how to cultivate and nurture the growth of a bunch of different players and a collective team as a whole. That's such a hard thing to do. And for him to be so good at that while also being so just wonky and weird is just endlessly fascinating to me. Um, So I I think Phil is a really interesting character study. Uh, I was going to say the Rodman stuff. I'm glad that they touched on it, but obviously if you watch the Rodman documentary, you got the whole Rodman story. So we don't, that's all been kind of told before, and we didn't necessarily need to go uh, super deep into that. I didn't think you just kind of hit the, the essential points, but I could watch a two-hour, at least, Phil documentary. Because um, he, he spans from the, the playing career to the early coaching career. Uh, I can't believe they even found that footage uh, of him in Puerto Rico. Um, and then, you know, to the present day, and you could even go into the Lakers stuff if you wanted to. I, I think he's impressive, and I'm glad uh, – he's getting kind of the world, the, the, the widespread acclaim. Cause those Knicks, those Knicks years kind of tainted it a little bit, and especially in my mind, it tainted it. Cause uh, that, that all got botched so badly. Um, but yeah, that, that's been a revelation as much as all the role players have been in, in watching uh, the games unfold that in the storytelling aspect has been, has been a huge unearthing for me. And, you know, actually uh, one thing that you mentioned too, about the, you know, the Tex winner story and, and how that kind of ties into the whole Doug Collins look you know, for me, again, somebody that's kind of known some of the backstories already, um, I never knew that the whole issue, it seemed like, with Doug Collins seemed to have stemmed from Tex Winter because that was a, a big thing here in Chicago. Um, people never really knew why Doug exactly got fired. We always thought that it was because he burned out, but it seems like it really had to do with Tex Winter. And the fact that he had banished Tex Winter to you know, sort of a, a note-taking role and, and that Krauss was not a fan of that and sort of then thought maybe now is the time to, to strike and, and kind of have Phil get ready for the job. So that was a very interesting story, kind of playing off of, of what you were saying there. Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting then the parallels of you see, you know, you watch the Tim Floyd uh, media tour uh, go around and then you see, okay, well, they kind of had him in their back pocket when they wanted to uh, to move on from Phil. And there are just, it, it's interesting parallels watching the way this organization has, has been run and kind of operated um, even to the present day. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of interesting to see the roots of all that and the things that maybe people are frustrated by um, that, that, you know, kind of has been a, a consistent thread throughout. Um, also interesting in terms of a cross-generational thing. It really, when you compare that, those warriors teams, the, the dynasty warrior teams, and the dynasty bowl teams to think about the, the similarities between the, the handoff from uh, Doug Collins to Phil Jackson and then Mark Jackson to, to Steve Kerr in the Warriors case, just kind of that, that extra jolt needed. It's obviously a little different because like you said, it kind of stemmed from, from the Tex winter stuff. Uh, but that, that was interesting and, and really interesting also to see how kind of tight Doug got when he was talking about it. Like it clearly is something that still bothers him to a degree. And I guess why wouldn't it? Uh, Cause you're, you're so beloved by Michael and you have such a strong relationship with him. And you have all this, you know, relative success, but then you watch kind of what you helped build turn into this 
all-encompassing dynasty and you're kind of on the outside looking in a bit uh so that was all interesting that that was all interesting to watch and it's interesting too that uh that there was more to be uncovered in that story even from someone who was was around it as it was happening Mm -hmm. and you know i would uh, i would encourage you when you uh start watching some of the 98 uh, you know playoff run there as they start getting into the eastern conference finals and and the finals listen carefully to when doug is is analyzing those games he takes a lot of interesting jabs at Phil and and that was something that he did a lot of when Phil was coaching the the Bulls in the in the late 90s and then uh, early in the Lakers run it seemed like over time I think they sort of made peace but there was a it was still very raw and fresh at that time I think so you you hear some interesting things that that get brought up during during those broadcasts um before I let you go Rob um where can people find you on on social media if they want to you know check out your work and stuff yeah, so at Rob underscore Schaefe on Twitter um, or uh, NBCSportsChicago.com, and, and you go to the Bulls tab, uh, you'll find my stuff. Uh, Casey Johnson, my colleague, uh, you know, best in the biz, and he, he's he got stuff um, pretty consistently, too. We're churning uh, in this time of news every hour of the day. It's been fun. Um, so that's, that's where you can find the two of us uh, and also uh, the Bulls Talk podcast. Uh, we have some good guests on there. We we had Tim Floyd a couple weeks ago. We had uh, Kobe White in non-last dance stuff. Uh, we had Bill Cartwright on an episode go out today. So, you know, we're always trying to, to do new things and hit new angles with that uh, as well. So check out any of those. Uh, you might hear my voice. You might see my words. Um, but ultimately, hopefully, uh, you have fun and, and learn something. Yeah, no, and Rob, you know, appreciate you coming on and definitely appreciate all the work that you and, and everybody at NBC Sports Chicago's doing during all this like i said it's certainly i think helping us get through some of this stuff and and the fact that you guys are still churning out some good content um i know for me and many other bulls fans greatly appreciated so thank you for that and thanks for coming on and and hope to have you on again soon yeah no doubt thanks matt it was good it was a good good combo Thank you for listening to the Rebuildable Podcast. Be sure to check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts.